Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, so we ended up with John chapter 6 last week, and we're not going verse by verse through all of John. It would take us a long time, so I'm, I'm picking some big chunks. But I do want to show you one of the I am statements. Just a little bit of review. How many I am statements were there in the Gospel of John? Seven. Why seven? Because that's a cool number, right? (laughs) Seven is a symbolic number for completeness or perfection. And especially when we get to Revelation, we'll see that again. John, the, the apostle who wrote the Gospel of John and who wrote Revelation, was very fond of seven. So he focuses on seven I am statements where Jesus says, I am. And we looked at last week how that comes from Exodus chapter 3 when God spoke out of the burning bush. And so when Jesus says, I am, he's basically saying, I am ultimately God. And that's really what got him crucified. And so let's look at John chapter 10. We actually have two I am statements here together, but they're linked. And it gives us something about who Jesus is and a theological truth that I want us to to kind of think about tonight. Okay, so let's look at at chapter 10. Um, Let's just start, where do I have a starting? Let's start with verse um, 7, chapter 10, verse 7. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, and remember last week, truly, truly, amen, amen. And Jesus repeats that double statement to say what he's about to say is, is something very, very important. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. Now, let's just stop right there. Is Jesus a literal door? He's not wooden on a hinge and swings back and forth. It's a metaphorical statement, right? What is a door? What does a door do? It opens and closes to allow entrance. So when Jesus says, I am the door, what's he basically saying? I'm the entry point into a relationship with God, okay? He's not one of many doors. He is the the only door. So let's keep going here. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, who is the thief in this this little story that Jesus is telling? The, The adversary, Satan. What does the name Satan mean? Anybody know? Yeah, the word Satan means adversary. The word devil means accuser. Here, the devil is referred to as a thief. What's he coming to do? Still, kill, and destroy. Jesus has come to do the exact opposite, to give us life and have it abundantly. Now, let's just talk about that word abundantly. Does this mean that Jesus gives us our heart's desire and everything we want, everything's going to go great, and we're going to have this perfect, great, abundant life? It just means full. We're going to have a full life. That can be full of what? It can be full of hardships. It can be full of sorrows. It can be full of pain. It can be full of joy. It just means when we trust Christ for salvation, He promises to fill us up with His life and also to give us a full life. Now, does Jesus ever promise to get us out of situations? But what does He promise? He promises to go with us through those. So... We may go through some hard times in this life, but Jesus always promises His presence. Okay? Now, let's just keep going. 
verse 11, he, he has the second I am, or the, in this section here, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I receive from my Father. Now there's a lot in this passage of Scripture, but let's just talk about what does a good shepherd do? What does a good shepherd do? Does a good shepherd beat the sheep? Does the good shepherd drag the sheep across the pasture and say, you know, come over here, sheep? What does the shepherd do? He leads, he takes care, he protects. And Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Others, other shepherds don't really care about the sheep. And, and notice what Jesus says there in verse 14. He says, I know my own and my own know me. It's a very powerful statement there. Does Jesus, Jesus has his sheep. And he knows us, and we know him. But he also says, I have other sheep that aren't of this fold. I need to go bring them in also. Now, who are the other sheep? He talks about sheep. Okay, so we have sheep. You guys are sheep. But there are other sheep. I need to bring the other sheep. And then what's going to happen when these two sheep come together? There will be what? What does he say? One flock so in the context of john who are the who's this the first sheep jewish people yeah jewish people those that are of israel those that um because what did paul say in romans 1 16 for i'm not ashamed of the gospel first the power of god for the salvation of all who believe first to the jew and then to the gentiles so christ first came to the jews we saw in Acts how the message spreads out to the Gentiles. Who are the other sheep then? The other sheep are the Gentiles. And so, but there's still one flock, one man, one church, one group of God's people. And so Jesus does something for his sheep. What specifically does it say there that Jesus will do? I will lay down my life. What is he talking about there? talking about the cross. I'm going to go to the cross and lay down my life for the sheep. Now, is Jesus ever a victim when it comes to the cross? Why is he not a victim? What does he say right there? He says, I have authority to lay down my own life because God's given that to me and I have authority to take it back again. So even when they're beating Jesus when they're pulling at his beard, when they're putting a crown of thorns on his head, all during that period of time, we may look at that and say, man, Jesus is being mistreated. He's a victim of circumstance. Is he ever a victim of circumstance? No. He's doing exactly what his father called him to do, and Jesus is in charge the whole time. Now, Pilate thinks he's in charge. The Roman officials think they're in charge. Later on, you'll find out as we get further in the Gospel of John where you know, Pilate says, you know, if 
you'd be dead, Jesus, if it weren't for me. And Jesus says, now, wait a minute. <laughs> the authority that you have is because I've given it to you. Okay, so, so Christ has authority to lay down his life for the sheep. Okay, now let's go down to verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, he's talking to the Jews who gathered around him, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe me because you're not a part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Okay. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. When the gospel is preached, who hears the message and follows? The sheep. sheep. Yeah, the sheep. So I have the confidence. Here's the issue. I've dealt with people over the years that may have got caught up in a a non-Christian cult for a period. There's actually somebody that I know that um, for a period of about three years was caught up in a what we'd call a non-Christian cult. And before this individual started, when this individual started getting involved in this cult, I approached this individual in my office and said, what you're doing is you're going down a path of being involved in a cult. And it's dangerous, and what you're doing is you are, you're in dangerous ground. So you need to repent and come back. Didn't want anything to do with the church. Didn't want to listen to me. Okay, three years later, this person comes into my office again and says, I want to talk to you about some things in the Bible. And, I, and those of you that know me, I hardly ever get angry with other people. Um, I'm pretty calm in my office. But this person was trying to tell me something that was absolutely false, heretical. And I said, let's read the Scripture. So I opened the Scripture, and I showed them the Scripture, and I had them read it. Well, what translation are you using? I'm using the ESV. Well, what does it say in the King James? So I pulled out. I have, in my office, I have every translation. So I pulled out every translation, and I said, you read this and tell me what it says. So the person read it, and I said, what, it, what you just told me contradicts what this, what this says. And she says, well, I'm going to have to go back and study. I'm like, no, read this. I got pretty angry. I'm like, read the Bible. And so I was really harsh. The only time I've ever been harsh with this person, I said, you are dangerously in a position where you are not believing God's word when you're clearly reading it. And you need to repent. Or if you don't repent, I'm going to tell you, you're going to go to hell. <laughs> and this person's like, wow. Okay, two weeks later, I didn't think much about it. I thought, man, Two weeks later, this person comes into my office weeping and says, I need to tell you something, Pastor Sean. God has opened my eyes that I was involved in a non-Christian cult, and I've thrown away all those tapes. I've thrown away all those teachings. I need to repent before you. I submit to your authority. I submit to the church's authority. I was wrong. I was deluded, and now I want to understand more about what the Bible says. Thank you for getting in my face. (laughs) Now, the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd. It may take somebody getting in their face <laughs> to yell at them, but if you're truly a sheep, you have the confidence to know that you'll hear the voice of Christ. Um, even like if you have wayward children or you have people that, are, that, are, that, you, that you love, that you, you know that they're probably a Christian 
you have the confidence to know that they're truly sheep, they will hear the voice of God and, and they will follow Christ. Now notice what Jesus says there in verse 26, an emphatic statement. I give them eternal life. Who gives, who gives us eternal life? Do we give ourselves eternal life? I give them eternal life. And they will what? Never. Okay, I'm going to teach you guys a term. In the Greek language, there's something called an emphatic negation. Okay? What in the world's an emphatic negation? All right, you guys tell me, what's a negation? Like a negative, like no or never. What's emphatic? Uh, strong, okay? So when Jesus says they will never perish right there, it's the strongest way in the Greek language to express the fact that his sheep will never perish out of his hand. So we could probably translate it, if we were to translate it like in an English translation, Jesus would say, I give them eternal life and they will never, no, not ever, ever perish. Or something like that. Okay? No one will snatch them out of my hand. My hand. Whose hand, whose hand are the sheep in, first of all? Jesus. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So who, whose hands are we in? The Father and the Son. And notice what Jesus says in verse 30. I and the Father are one. Okay, I and the Father are one. Wow, Jesus, you're getting yourself into some scary territory because what are you basically saying, Jesus? You are God. He's basically said, I am. You remember Jewish people back in the, when Moses was in the wilderness and, and God spoke to him through the burning bush and said, let my people go? That was me. Now look at the next verse. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Why did they want to stone Jesus at that moment? Blasphemy. Because he claimed to be God. And there was a time earlier when he said, Before Abraham was, I am. So in this I am statement, remember what a sign is, guys. This is not necessarily a sign miracle, but what's his point in this I am statement? When he says, I am the good shepherd. What, in fact, is Jesus saying about himself? He is absolutely going to lay down his life for the sheep. He's going to take care of those sheep. Those sheep are going to follow him. Those sheep are going to hear him. He's going to do everything in his power to love, redeem, hold, keep, protect those sheep. So if you're a sheep tonight, what confidence do you have in your shepherd? A lot of, a lot of confidence. But even though... Like, if you wander over to the edge of the field and you're about to go off a cliff, what's the shepherd going to do? He's a good shepherd. Now, what's a good shepherd do? Is he just going to let you fall off? Sometimes he may have to go and yank you. Does that hurt? Is Jesus going to yank us sometimes for our best good? Other times, it's funny, do you know what happens to a sheep when it falls over on its back? I've fallen and I can't get up. I mean, it's life alert. Okay, and they need a little life alert thing around their necks. A sheep cannot turn itself over. It will twist its gut. That's basically what will happen. Its inner cavities will compress upon itself and it will die unless somebody comes and turns it over. But how does a shepherd turn the sheep over? Most good shepherds aren't going to come and just plop the sheep over because it will hurt the sheep. A shepherd will come and it will massage the sheep, it will talk to the sheep, it will caress the sheep, and it will gently turn the sheep over. And sometimes Jesus has to do that with us. 
Other times he takes the what? <laughs> the staff and, and he yanks us back. But either way you look at it, you are in the strong grip of the shepherd and he loves the sheep. He laid down his life for the sheep. He's going to protect the sheep at all costs. So that's good news for us who are sheep. If you're a goat, I'll just leave that out, hanging out there. <laughs> Make sure you're a sheep. That's all I'm saying because at the end of times there's going to be a separation of sheep and goats. All right. Let's go to John 11. This is an interesting story where, again, remember some of John's material is not in the synoptic material. This is a story that's not in the synoptic material. This is the the raising of Lazarus from the dead, okay? Jesus is going to give another I am statement here in the light of what happens. So there's a lot of questions here about this story. So let's just start in, in chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment, come on in guys, and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, okay. This illness does not lead to death. Now, what just happens? Lazarus dies. So is Jesus lying? What's he saying here? What's the most important thing? What's the setup here? What's the most important thing Jesus is saying here about this entire thing? He tells us from the very beginning. This is about the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, what's the worst thing that can happen to you? Someone that you love dies. I can't think of anything worse than... The person that you love the most dies. And so Jesus says, even in the midst of that, I'm going to glorify myself. And look at verse 5. It's very interesting. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So Jesus had a special relationship. Not like Jesus. I mean, Jesus loved a lot of people, didn't he? I mean, but he had a special relationship with this family. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Does that make sense? If you wanted to tell Jesus what to do, what would you be like? Jesus, my brother is sick. You need to be here yesterday. He's going to die. We know you're a miracle worker. We've seen you work miracles. You've been in our home. You need to come now and do this. And Jesus just waits around. Is Jesus on a different timetable? He's on God's timetable. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. The disciple says, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciple said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant he was taking a rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly. (laughs) I love that. Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. (laughs) And for your sake, for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let's go to him. This doesn't make a lot of sense. Jesus saying he's died, but I'm really glad we weren't there when he died for your sake. I know what's going to happen, but for your sake, I'm glad that we weren't there when he died because this is for your faith. This is for your belief. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us go, that we may die with him. 
because they're going back to a hotbed area where Jesus had, had had a lot of threats. Okay, look at verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. Okay. Now, Martha here is thinking about the final resurrection. Because the Jews believed in a final resurrection, like we do. That one day, God's going to raise people from the dead and everybody's going to get their new bodies. We, we believe in that. So she's thinking, okay, yeah, we know at the end times... Lazarus is going to rise again. And Jesus says, yes and no. He's going to... Does, does Jesus ever tell Martha, I'm going to go raise Lazarus from the dead? What does he say? Instead of saying, this is what I'm going to do, what does he say? This is who I am. What does he say there? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So Jesus gives another I am statement. They're saying, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the source of eternal life. I'm the one who's going to resurrect myself. And because I'm going to resurrect, everyone who believes in me will experience eternal life. And so let's keep moving through the text here. Verse 28. When she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Okay, let's just stop right there. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. The little translation, he snorted like a horse. Jesus was mad. Jesus was sad. We're not Gnostics who believe Jesus didn't have any emotions. He was fully man, right? So he can experience anguish. He can experience anger. He can experience pain. He can experience sadness. And then we come to verse 34. Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Now remember growing up, you almost want to memorize the, the, the easiest scripture to memorize. Jesus wept. And we kind of throw that out there like Jesus wept. It wasn't like Jesus shed a little tear, like you know, like the Indian on that commercial back in the old days when the litter, you know, the, the one tear coming down his face. Jesus wept here meant it was a, it was really like a powerful weeping. He was, he was deeply weeping. Why was Jesus weeping and why was Jesus mad? Why do you think he was mad? Was he mad that Mary and Martha didn't understand? No. Was he mad that his friend died? He was about to raise him, so he knew that he was coming back. It's, it's, it's baffled scholars. Why was Jesus so moved and angry? 
And the best answer I can come up with is that Jesus realized the ravaging effects of sin in this world and realized that we live in a fallen world where people die. And it just bothered him to realize that there's death in this world and that one day everything's going to be made right. But in, in that moment, he, was, he felt the full weight of the fact that there's sin and death and destruction in this world. Okay, so let's look at verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. This is a great part. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. Anybody have a King James? I think it says he will stinketh. Stinketh. (laughs) And that's what it says. By this time, Lord, he will stinketh. There will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see what? The glory of God. Didn't Jesus say earlier, I'm doing this for the glory of God, that he would be glorified through this. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Okay, this is a time where Jesus is not, Jesus is praying to the Father, but he always prays to the Father, right? Why is he praying at this point? He's like, God, Father, you and I have this great relationship, and we, we, we have this very intimate relationship, and I'm always praying to you, and you're always hearing me, but the reason I'm praying to you right now in front of everybody else here is for their faith, for their benefit, so that they would believe. Now, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Does it make sense to beckon a dead person to come out of a tomb? Does it make sense? It did for Jesus. Um, many of you remember our desertia that came and preached in our church many years back and he tells a story about how he used to grow he, when he was first married him and his wife lived in a morgue when they were going through college and um, he said it was really kind of creepy but he said what would happen if I walked down to the basement of the morgue and took a big huge pin and poked the toe of a dead person what would happen they would not respond or do anything he said, what would really be scary is if they you know, went, ow, and rose up. That, that would mean they weren't dead. You can poke and prod and do everything you can to a dead person, but are they going to respond? Okay. You cannot, you, you preach to a dead person. Dead person, come out. But what happens here? The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with the cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. So there's power in the call, right? The call affected the resurrection. So when Jesus called out, why did Jesus, this is what Alistair Begg says. You guys know Alistair Begg? He's a Scottish pastor here in America. Dear ones, he always uses words like, he said the reason that Jesus said Lazarus come out, because if he just said come out, all the tombs would come out. Everybody would be resurrected. There's power in the call. So the call of Christ affected the resurrection of a dead man. And what did the dead man do? He came out and he came to Jesus. Now, this is a physical example of a call going out to a dead person, a dead person rising and coming to Christ. Okay, metaphorically or spiritually, what's this a picture of? Effectual calling or regeneration or all right, so let's just let's establish something here. Are sinners dead in sin? Okay. Can we somehow save ourselves or resurrect ourselves or cause ourselves to be born again? No. God must do something. So when a preacher stands up and preaches or calls 
to dead people, he's really, I'm doing something that's impossible. I, I stand up on Sunday morning and tell people, repent and believe in Jesus. Do I have any power to cause people to do that? Okay, but, but the call goes out, right? When the call goes out, is there power in the call through the Holy Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit do in the moment of the call? Now, there's an external call that goes out to everybody, but there's an internal call that happens when God does that work of bringing a dead sinner to life. What happens when a person actually believes, they repent and believe? What's that evidence of? They've been made alive. They've been resurrected to new life. They've been made alive. And the power's in the call. So, when I stand up and preach on Sunday morning, there are dead people out there that the only way they're going to be coming alive is if God does it. Now, does this remind you of an Old Testament story? Turn back to Ezekiel for just a moment. Another situation where a guy was told to preach to dead people. Look at Ezekiel chapter 37. Now, what would happen if Lazarus would have... What would have Lazarus said, No, I want to stay dead, Jesus. Keep me in the tomb. Would that have made sense? Lazarus came out and responded because there was power in the call to bring him to life. And what did he do? He came to Christ. Okay? So when you share, I'm speaking here of a preacher, but anytime you share the gospel with someone that's lost, you're facing the same situation. When you're, when you're talking with a lost person, whether it's over coffee, over your, your backyard fence, at work, when you're talking to a lost person, they are dead. And the only way they're ever going to be made alive is if God does something. But how does God do that? What's the means God uses to bring a dead person to life? He uses your mouth and your message, right? Is there anything big about your mouth? Well, some of you. That was kind of a trick question. Some spouses are like, well, yeah, he's kind of got something there. When you speak the gospel, is there anything... I mean, you're just speaking the gospel, right? But what happens when you speak the gospel? Is there power in the message? You bet. Is there power in the Holy Spirit? You bet. Can you bring anybody to life? What's the one thing you can do? Open your mouth and testify. And God does the work of regeneration. Now let's look at Ezekiel 37, verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley that was full of bones. Dead, right? And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many of them on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And like any good person that's questioned by God, and I answered, Oh, Lord God, you know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I, yeah, sure, God. They, they, they can, if it's coming from you. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. Now, does this make any sense for Ezekiel to preach to dead bones? God says, preach to these bones, preach to them. Okay, if you were Ezekiel, what would you do? There's a bunch of skeletons, moldy in a field, and God has me out here to preach a message to them. Dear bones, we're gathered here today. No, I don't know. I'm, what's the, I mean, I'm going to preach to the bones. 
God's telling me to do this. Okay, so what does he do? Verse 7, so I prophesied as I was commanded. I'm not going to question God. I'm going to preach. Doesn't make sense. These bones are dead. I'm going to preach. But look at what happens. As I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Okay, what's the breath? Ruach. You guys all say that? (laughs) It's the Hebrew word for breath, ruach. It also means spirit. So, when you stand up or sit down or whatever, whenever you open your mouth to share the gospel with dead people, how are they ever going to be raised to life? Breath has to come into them. And how does that come? Through the Holy Spirit. Now go down and look at verse 14. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land, and you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, I will do it, declares the Lord. Remember John 3 last week? The spirit blows where it will, like the wind. So you've got two metaphors in the Bible, one from the Old Testament of preaching to dead people, and then once you preach, something happens to bring them to life. One example is Jesus doing it. The other example is Ezekiel doing it. But in both cases, you've got dead people that come to life through the proclamation of the gospel. That's what a preacher has to deal with every Sunday when he stands up to preach. That's what you have to deal with anytime you share the gospel with a lost person. You are dealing with something that you can't, you can't um, manufacture. Can you get a decision out of someone? Can you talk to someone long enough? Just believe what I say. Let me twist your arm. Let me put it a different way. Let me, let me sugarcoat it. Can we in and of ourselves ever affect this true regeneration? Can we get people to make a decision? Yes, we can. Is that true salvation? If you get 20 kids in this room right now, all under the age of 10, with the power of manipulation and persuasion, I can get them all to ask Jesus in their heart and believe that they're Christians. Any, any adult can do that if they really wanted to because kids are impressionable and they're not going to, especially if it's the pastor, unless you have a little Johnny Satanist that doesn't want to do I mean, he's the only one there. <laughs> no, I don't want to believe in Jesus. How many of you want to go to heaven? Every kid's going to raise their hand. All right, you're all saved. Have a nice life. Now, you can get kids to make decisions. You can get kids to raise their hands. But true salvation is what? You go from death to life and only god can do that so when you look at lazarus not only it's, it's a couple of things it's also a picture of the final resurrection because what's it it's a picture really of three realities has jesus died and rose again yet in the story no so it's a picture of the resurrection of jesus it's a picture of regeneration of the of the sinner to a new faith in christ and number three it's a picture of the final resurrection where we too will one day rise to new life lazarus has an interesting experience he got to raise from the, he's going to get to rise from the dead twice he died twice it's kind of weird but in redemptive history this is a situation where jesus did this why what's the bottom line why jesus did this so God would be glorified so that he could tell everyone, I am what? The resurrection and the life. Okay. Remember how I said chapter 13 was the shifting place in the, in the gospel of, of John? 
You don't remember that. <laughs> That's okay. I said that. You trust me. Um, chapter 13, we, we move into what's called the upper room discourse. In chapters 13, 14, chapters 13 and 14, they're in the upper room celebrating the Lord's Supper. Chapter 15, they move out of there and they go down into, Jesus is probably talking to them on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And then in chapter um, 17, Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then basically in chapter 18 is when Jesus is arrested. So for chapters 13 through 17, you've got the, this whole section here called the Upper Room Discourse where Jesus has got his disciples there and it's really that Thursday night because when is Jesus crucified? Early, well, he's arrested early in the morning on Friday. So this is, this is the, the celebration of, of the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, the Passover. But it's interesting what Jesus does. In, in chapter 13, we have another bit of information here that we don't have in the other synoptic gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's only pertinent to the Gospel of John, and that is the washing of the disciples' feet. Now let's look at this story because it's very interesting. Again, we see the authority of Christ. We see the sovereignty of Christ. We see the omniscience of Christ. We see Christ fulfilling all righteousness. So let's look at chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, John often talks about the hour. Jesus knew that his hour had come. That's shorthand for what? The cross. The whole, the whole betrayal, the crucifixion, the whole, the whole cross, the hour of his departure had come. He knew it. He knew the time was near. Okay? I had an argument with one time when I was a youth pastor at my former church. Um, I had a, a youth leader that I found out, I, I, I observed like a Sunday school class, and he was teaching the kids that Jesus didn't know really when he was going to go to the cross and he didn't really know the future and that Jesus kind of reacted all along and that when they came and arrested him, that, you know, he didn't really know what was happening. And I said, can't teach that. And so we kind of got into some, a, little, a little tiff over this person did not believe in the omniscience of Christ, that he kind of reacted all along the way. What does Jesus say right here? He knew his hour had come to leave. Now, how he knew that? I believe it's because he was in constant communion with the Father. He always did what the Father wanted him to do. He was always in constant communion with the Father. And so I think the Father, he was just so close to the Father, he knew. But notice what he says. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Who is he loving to the end? His own. Okay. During the supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper. Now, why do you think John says, Jesus, knowing that he had given... What has what the Father given to Jesus here? All authority. Jesus has all authority that the Father has given to him. So, here you have Jesus with all authority. Now, there's a setup here because... Jesus having all authority, all power, omniscience, complete power, what he's about to do next shows that Jesus is absolutely, totally aware of who he is, what his mission is, and what it means for him to love his disciples. It's shocking when you think about it. So what does he do? Verse 4, he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Now, 
Let's just talk about what Jesus does here. Only slaves were the ones that would wear these like towel things. Jesus takes off his outer garment and Jesus basically dresses like a slave. They had this huge long towel that they'd wrap around and only the slaves were the ones that would wipe people's feet, wash people's feet. Now, were there paved streets back there in those days? Dusty, muddy, dirty. Did they wear like combat boots? No, they wore sandals. So when you came into a home, it was customary to take off your shoes and then the slaves of the house would come and wash your feet so that you could be presentable. I mean, even in Asian cultures, like when we, when we go to India, anytime, even this is the most bizarre thing. You go to India and you go into, David knows what I'm talking about, you go into a little hut that's probably about, some of those huts, Dave, were about like the size of half of this room here and about this tall, yeah, for us tall. You still have to take off your shoes to go in their floor. Maybe totally dirty, but it's their culture to take off your shoes to go into their house. It was just a sign of respect. In those Middle Eastern and Asian cultures, taking off shoes, but the, 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 the slaves would come and wash people's feet. And Jesus, who has all authority, all power, knowing that he's about to die, what does he do? He says, at this moment, I'm going to become a slave. And what does he do? He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, it does not say this in the text, but I'm assuming that he did wash Judas's feet. I'm sure he didn't go, okay, I'm going to wash Peter's, I'm going to wash Andrew's, I'm going to wash John. Oh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to wash Judas's. Do you think Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him? Absolutely. It's shocking. Now, look at what happens with Peter. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord! Do you wash my feet? Peter's shocked. He's like, Jesus, you shouldn't be doing this. This is reserved for a slave. Don't you dare lower yourself to be a slave and wash my feet. You can't do this, Jesus. This is, this is beneath you. And then Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. <laughs> and Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet also, but my hands and my head. Okay, Jesus, if that's the way it is, give me a whole bath. Okay. One moment, you're never going to do this, Jesus. Next moment, give me a whole bath. Because if you don't wash me, I have no part in you. <laughs> Verse 10, Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Why are they clean? Because they've been saved by grace. Okay, this is not, this is, this foot washing here is not a salvific thing. It's not for their salvation. It's, it's for, it's, and Jesus tells us what the purpose of it is here in just a moment. But he says, all of you are clean except for one of you. Now, the shocking thing is, at that point, nobody's expected Judas. They're all looking at each other. Is it me? Is it me? Is it me? All right, let's go to verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, here's the teaching, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, an example that you should also do just as I've done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. 
I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be filled. He who ate bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Jesus says, I'm doing this as what? An example. What are the two ordinances that Jesus has given the church? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Have you ever heard of foot washing Baptists? There's some groups out there that actually practice foot washing as like a sacrament or ordinance. Now, did Jesus command this to be done as a church ordinance? What does he say? He doesn't say this, do this in remembrance of me, not like baptism or Lord's Supper. He says, I'm doing this as an example. What's the, what's the most important thing? Is the most important thing washing feet or what's the thing? Being able to lower ourselves as a servant being willing to love others to the end. Now, let me ask you a question. Have any of you ever participated in a foot washing experience? It's very awkward, isn't it? What's more awkward, for you to wash someone's feet or for you to have your feet washed? Most of us would say to have our feet washed. Why? Because there's just nothing pretty about feet. <laughs> the only person that has good feet is my wife. She's got really nice feet. And I mean, I'm not saying that because I'm her husband, but she's got nice feet. But most people's feet are kind of... Weird feet are just weird things. Take toenail polish. Okay, so you so you know what? Yeah, that's not washing feet, but take toenail polish. Peggy's like TMI. Too much information. But anyway, anyway, now for something completely different. Um, it's an example, and it's amazing because Jesus is doing this, knowing full well that number one, Judas has already. Um, Satan has already entered Judas to betray him. Number two, he knew that he was going to the Father and it said he loved them to the end. And so even there towards the very end of his life, he was still serving. He was still serving. Okay, let's keep going through this discourse. Let's look at John 14, 1 through 6. So this is probably one of the most famous quotes besides John three sixteen. John 14, 6 is probably the other most famous quote in the Gospel of John. Okay? Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. I'm, I'm t- chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house. Okay, let's just stop right there. The King James Version translates that inaccurately. What does the King James says? In my Father's house are many mansions. Okay, you got the televangelists that say, well, if you're going to have a mansion in heaven, you might as well have a mansion here on earth. And they have the whole health, wealth, prosperity thing because of mansion. The word there just means room. Okay. Now, does it matter what our house is like in heaven or does it matter who's there? Who's there, okay? Um, you know, as long as I have a roof over my head, I mean, there's not going to be rain, so it doesn't really matter, okay? I mean, we can't even conceive of heaven, so, I mean, let's not get caught up on what kind of house you're going to have. So much sidetracking here is like, what kind of house are you going to have? No, what's Jesus saying here? He's saying that I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be. What's the most important thing? You will be with Jesus, wherever he is. And so I don't know what heaven's going to be like, but here's what I tell people. Wherever Jesus is, that's where I want to be. That's the best place, okay? All the mechanics and all the stuff that you don't know yet, that'll be a great surprise, but the most important thing to me is I want to be where Jesus is because he's the glory of God, and he's my Savior, and I just want to be where he is. Okay, and notice what he says here. Uh, Verse 4, And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? 
Thomas is like, you're talking about going somewhere. What are, what are you talking about? Are we going back to Bethany? Are we going across the sea again? What, what's going on here? Jesus said, verse 6, I am, here's the other I am statement, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So what is Jesus saying there about the exclusivity of himself? Jesus says, I am the way, right? Okay, some people, and there's a popular book that came out a few years ago. Did I talk about this last week? Can I pick on a book? Or are you guys going to be mad if I pick on a book? All right, go ahead. They're like, go ahead, pick on the book. You probably heard me talk about it anyway. Lori, Lori kind of knows what book I'm going to pick on, don't you think? Because I wrote, I wrote a, probably, okay, The Shack. Okay, The Shack. I mean, it's an interesting book. It's an interesting read. But there's some interesting statements in there. Jesus, in that book himself, says to Mac, the main character, I am the best way to get to God. Now, that at first glance may sound good, but if Jesus is the best way, what does that mean? There are other ways. He's just one of many. He's the best. Now, let me give you something that David DeLauder, our missionary, told me. When we were in India, I don't know if you were there, David, when he was talking about this. Maybe we were driving the car, and, and David said, yeah, uh, here in India, um, we have all these religions. We've got Hinduism and stuff, and, and all paths really do lead to God. And I said, what? All paths lead to God? David, are we going to have to, like, like not fund, you know, are we going to have to not have a partnership with you anymore? What do you mean all paths lead to God? He's like, yeah, all paths lead up to the mountain, to God. It's just when you get up there, is God going to be your Savior or is he going to be your judge? So all paths lead to God. So when you die, he's either going to be your Savior or he's going to be under your wrath. You're not going to escape the path to God. It's just whatever path you choose, he's going to be your, your judge. You're going to be under his wrath. And I thought, okay, thanks for explaining that. That's a good way, that's a good way to put it, though, because you shock people. All paths lead to God. In a, in a sense, they all, everybody's going to die. And after that, face the judgment. And so we have to be very clear here in our day and age. Do you think this is under attack? That Jesus is the only way of salvation. What do a lot of people say? Are people afraid to say that? Like when they go on television, like when pastors go on television and CNN and someone pushes them and says, now, now tell me, do you really believe that? That's intolerant, you're bigoted, you're racist. What are you talking about to say that everybody else is wrong? Muslims who are sincere are wrong, Buddhists who are sincere are wrong, New Agers, Mormons, people who follow Oprah, all of them are sincere. You're saying that you have a corner on the truth and Jesus is the only way? How dare you say that in our culture? You are so intolerant. Well, you're intolerant of me having my belief, so let's not talk about tolerance. But anyway, um, what you would say is, I'm not saying this. I'm quoting what Jesus said. So if you have a problem with the statement, have a problem with Jesus. And that, I mean, really, when we are Christians, do we, are we innovators or are we just messengers? We just deliver what Jesus has already said. So we don't have to worry about, we don't have to defend Jesus. Okay? I think sometimes we're afraid we have to defend him. Whoa, 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 whoa. No, let Jesus speak. All I'm doing is quoting to you from a book I believe, and yes, I believe this, what Jesus said, and yes, I believe it. And I'll pray for you, and I'll love you, but I can't back down from what Jesus says because one day I'm going to have to stand before this Jesus, and my only hope of getting to heaven is believing that he is the only way. So if I equivocate on that, I'm, I'm disqualifying myself. Now, you can do that kindly, but it's going to get worse and worse in our culture where people are going to call you all types of names for believing in 
a narrow absolute truth. Is the Bible a narrow absolute truth? So the culture is already stacked against us, and it's going to get worse. So we need to be prepared for it. That's why Jesus said all throughout the, the Bible, people are going to hate you. <laughs> You're going to be persecuted. You're going to face trials and tribulations. Many, many will hate you on account of my name. And we think about that, and we're like, no, no, okay, maybe someplace like in the Sudan or in Iran or you know, those, those, those closed countries. But here in America, well, it could. Very, and I would say slowly, not slowly. I think it could quickly happen. So what's the temptation? The temptation is for us to water down the gospel. If you water down the gospel, does it become a gospel? It becomes no gospel. And if it has no gospel, is there any power for salvation? No. Okay? I think I'm preaching to the choir, so let's move on here. Um, now, if you get down to chapter 14, verse 31, you see a transition. They're in the upper room, okay, like we picture where they're, they're celebrating the Last Supper. Verse 31, um, he says, But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. So let us go from here. Where do they go? We don't really know, but we probably are thinking that, okay, here's Jerusalem, and here's, here's like the city of Jerusalem over here on the left. Here's the Kidron Valley, and there's what's called the Kidron Brook. And then you go up the hill, and here's the Garden of Gethsemane. And then, then you go up, and here's the Mount of Olives. So most scholars believe that somewhere, the room was somewhere over here in Jerusalem. Let us go from here. We know they're going to the Garden of Gethsemane, okay? But Jesus has to cross, they have to cross down the Kidron Brook and get to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, there's something very interesting. Josephus is a Jewish historian that wrote a lot about what was going on during that time. This is Passover, okay? They're celebrating Passover. Over a million people are coming to Jerusalem. What do you do at Passover? You kill lambs. What happens with the blood that those lambs are killed with? There's got to be some place to dispose them. The disposal trough, the disposal area, was the Kidron Brook. So as Jesus comes to the Kidron Brook, some people say it could have been knee-high in blood. So think about emotionally Jesus stops. The lamb's blood is flowing, and he has to drudge his disciples through this to the Garden of Gethsemane where he's about to pray. Do you think Jesus thought... Lambs being sacrificed, I'm the Lamb of God. My hour has come. Do you think the disciples kind of caught the, caught the feeling? They're probably thinking, man, I just have to walk through blood. <laughs> Jesus knows what's going to happen. And so let us go on from there. And then he talks about, I am the vine. I am the vine. Well, where are they when he talks about, I am the vine? They're in a garden which has what? Vines. So it just makes sense. I'm sure Jesus probably even stopped and picked up the vine and said, okay, guys, object lesson. Here's a vine. Here's a branch. I am the vine, okay? Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on John 15, 1 through 11, because I think that we um, dealt with that, not extensively, but we talked about it a little bit on Sunday morning. But just to know there, let's just look at one verse there. Um, verse 5, it's another, this is the last I am statement that Jesus makes. In John, I'm going to save it for later, but I, I have to tip my hand. In Revelation, we have some more I am statements, which makes sense when John's the gospel writer. 
and he wrote Revelation. But what does Jesus say in John 15, 5? I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. What does it mean that Jesus is a vine and we're a branch? What, what, can a branch survive without the vine? What does it do? It withers, it dies, it, cr- it crisply, crustily fades away. Sap, what does sap do? Sap goes through the root system, goes to the vine, it provides nourishment. And so Jesus, what he's saying here is, I'm the ultimate source of nourishment. I'm the ultimate source of life. You need to stay connected to me because apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, does that mean that you can't walk and chew gum at the same time? If you're not praying to Jesus, you can't do anything. What's he saying there? What's the context? He it is that bears much fruit. It's fruit bearing. And probably more, when we think about fruit bearing there, it's not so much like the fruit of the Spirit. It's it's more so evangelism. Um, We really can't do anything in our own power as far as seeing the kingdom of God advance or seeing people get saved or all these things happen. Um, We really can't see anything of significant power and spiritual vitality in and of ourselves. It has to be Christ doing, doing all of that. Okay. Now, let's talk about the Holy Spirit. Because in John chapter 14, 15, and 16, he brings up the Holy Spirit numerous times. Now, before we talk about the Holy Spirit, let me just ask you a very simple question. When Jesus was physically on earth, how extensive was his ministry, geographically wise? Did he ever go out, did he ever go to China? Did he ever really go outside? There's a couple times he went outside of Judea, but for the most part, where did he stay? He stayed on that small sliver of land that we call Palestine. Okay. So geographically, Jesus' ministry was limited. Okay. At the end of his ministry, how extensive was it just in numbers? How many people really, truly believed in Jesus? How does Acts begin? How many people are there? 120 in an upper room. Remember, he fed 5,000. So did Jesus have a massive following? Could Jesus be in two places at once? Well, if he wanted to, but what what were the limitations of Jesus having a body? The limitations of having a body, okay? Could Jesus have set up First Baptist Church Jerusalem, built a church, became the pastor, and set up shop there, and just had the church there in Jerusalem? Could he have done that? Yes, he could have, but Jesus died on the cross, and he went back up to heaven. So without Jesus in a physical body, the disciples are probably thinking, our ministry's over. Jesus is not physically here anymore. How in the world is this thing going to happen? So what does Jesus promise to bring? The Holy Spirit. Now, what's so unique about the Holy Spirit? Is the ministry of the Holy Spirit going to be more extensive and more powerful? This may sound heretical, but let me just say it. Is the ministry of the Holy Spirit going to be more extensive and more powerful than Jesus was when he was on earth? And if you have to look at Acts and say, yes, Peter preaches the first sermon and how many people are saved? 5,000. Okay. So what's the beauty of the Holy Spirit? Was it 3,000? Yeah, it was 3,000. And yeah, Paul's looking at me, 3,000. And then later it was, yeah. Thanks for checking me on my fact checker back there. Um, what's unique about the Holy Spirit? He lives inside of believers. So now Jesus can be everywhere on the earth through people Without being, Because if, if Jesus was still confined to a body, everybody would be like a pilgrimage to Mecca. Everybody would have to come to where Jesus is. Now he comes to the Holy Spirit and can go everywhere. 
And so Jesus is going to try to explain this to his disciples that don't quite understand it. So let's look at 14, 15 through 17. Okay? This is the first time Jesus mentions, and he mentions this word, the helper. I'm going to explain to you what the helper means. Actually, let me, let me do that first. It's the paraclete is the Greek word. A paraclete. It's translated helper. I think some, trans, some of your translations say comforter. Counselor. It has a, a, a lot of different meanings. It, the first meaning, it means one who comes alongside and helps. It also means one who is sent to the front of battle to help the troops, to strengthen the troops. It also means a legal defendant in court, so like a legal, like a, a lawyer. So it has a, a lot of shades of meaning. When you take these all together, it's one who comes alongside of you to be your defense, to strengthen you, and to help you. The helper. And let's find out about this helper. What does it say? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Here we are in chapter 14, verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. What do we find out about the helper? He's called the helper. He's sent to be with us for how long? Forever. Forever. He's called the spirit of? Very, very important. He's called the spirit of truth. And then what also? He will dwell in all true believers. Do you, can you conceive of the fact that the God of the universe through the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your very body? That's mind-boggling. When you become a Christian, you become the, Holy, the temple of the Holy Spirit and He dwells in you. Now, I think I said this last week. In the Old Testament, did the Holy Spirit ever permanently dwell inside believers? He would often come on believers for power, for anointing, but He never really took up permanent residence inside of a person. So Jesus says he will be in you forever. He's a spirit of truth. Okay? So what else? So that's that's something that we can learn about the Holy Spirit. Here, here's something interesting about the Holy Spirit. Depending on what your background is, you either give too much attention to the Holy Spirit or you don't talk about him enough. You understand what I'm saying? You got the holy roller people that all everything's about the Holy Spirit. You see all this weird stuff on televangelistic stuff. Or you have like Baptistic people over here like, we're afraid to talk about the Holy Spirit because somebody might raise their hand in church or something. So it's like we're more afraid of what the Holy Spirit doesn't do than what he does. So let me just say this. Can the Holy Spirit defend himself? Should we be afraid of the Holy Spirit? No. We need to understand the Holy Spirit. So the first thing we see here is he's with us forever. He's a spirit of truth. That's important. Spirit of truth. Because Jesus is going to say that multiple times. So let me just, if I don't get there, let me say it now. If the Holy Spirit leads you or leads a ministry or leads a church to do something that is not in line with the truth of Scripture, is he acting in accordance with what his nature is? No, he is the spirit of truth. So his job is to bring the truth of the scripture to bear in our hearts and minds. Okay? Now let's go to John 14, 26. Let's go to the very end of the chapter there. Uh, John 14, 26. But the helper, 
the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So he's going to be what? He will come in the name of Jesus. He will teach us all things. He will bring to our remembrance the words of Christ. So the Holy Spirit's job is to be a teacher. The Spirit of truth. Okay? Let's go to John 15. 26 through 27. Okay. It's missing a blank. John 15, 26 through 27. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. What's the goal of the Holy Spirit? To bear witness to Jesus, to point to Jesus, to show us Jesus, to open our eyes to Jesus, to be the spirit of truth, to witness about Jesus. Okay, let's go to John 16, uh, 7 through 15. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged I still have many things to say to you but, when you but you cannot bear them now when the spirit of truth comes he will guide you into all the truth for he will speak on his own authority but whatever he hears he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come he will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare to you all that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So ultimately, what is Jesus saying is the role of the Holy Spirit? To teach us the scriptures and to glorify Jesus. So any ministry or church or organization that talks a lot about the Holy Spirit, but they don't talk about the scriptures or Jesus, are they being true to who the Holy Spirit says he is? Okay, He is the helper he will guide us he will glorify he will take with jesus and make it make it known to us okay any questions on the role of the holy spirit it's a quick treatment on the holy spirit in in the gospel of john it's interesting if you go back um let's look here john uh 14 20 let's see here john 14 26 Okay, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Okay, John 15. And I'm trying to find. Maybe I missed it. Okay. Uh, I can't find it here, but it's interesting. If you go back, well, I can't. Never mind. I don't want to teach something I haven't thought about in a while, so let's just move on, okay? You're like, what was he going to talk about? Well, I don't know either. All right, John 17. <laughs> this is called the high priestly, Martin Luther called this the high priestly prayer of Jesus. 
Jesus is alone in the garden. This is, this is material only found in John's gospel. It's not in the synoptics. And obviously somebody had to have been there to have overheard Jesus praying to record this. So John, yes, Larry. What we just covered, how much of this do you think that these, the disciples really understood at that time? I don't think they understood a lot. And I think that they didn't fully understand it until Pentecost. Because when... Because Jesus, even at the end of Luke, says the promised helper will come. You wait for power up on high. And then when the Holy Spirit came in on them, I think they, they fully. And I think they also had to wait till the resurrection. I think there's a lot of, yeah, there was a lot of things that the disciples didn't fully get until the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and then Pentecost. So, yeah. No, no, I think you're, I think you're right. I think that most of the time the disciples were pretty clueless. If you look at the Gospels, how many times did Jesus happen to say, my guys, you're not getting this, or you're not understanding this, or you will understand this, and so, which gives us hope, doesn't it? If the disciples couldn't get it, <laughs> Amen. <laughs> All right, John 17, the high priestly prayer, and in chapters one through five, um, Jesus prays for himself. In six through nineteen, Jesus prays for his immediate disciples, and then in John uh, 17, 20 through twenty-six, Jesus prays for us, future believers. And so, um, just for the sake of time, I'm not sure. Okay, let's let's look at just a few things here. I, I want to finish John tonight, and, I, and we've got about what 15 more minutes or so. Um, interesting here, the very first thing Jesus says in John 17 kind of what we talked about a little bit last week in John 6. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. So what does that mean? The hour has come. Glorify your Son that you, that the Son may glorify you. What's Jesus most concerned about in the cross? The glory of God. The glory of God. Since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorified me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Amazing statement. Look at verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished all the work you gave me to do. R.C. Sproul has said this. We are not only saved by the death of Jesus, we're saved by the life of Jesus. If he had not lived a perfect life... Would there be salvation? Because all of the perfect righteousness that Jesus did is accredited to us the moment we trust Christ for salvation. It's called justification by faith alone. And an amazing statement here, Jesus says, I glorified you having accomplished everything that you, that you gave me to do. It's an amazing statement. And then in verse 6 through um, 19, he talks about praying for his immediate followers there. But I want you to go down to verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Ah, Jesus, come on now. That would have been so nice. But that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I'm not of the world. Okay, point number one there. Does Jesus take us out of the world? He says you have to be in the world. But I'm going to protect you from the evil one. Okay, now there's a balance there. What happens if if we're just out there in the world, what could happen to us? Remember Romans 12, 1 and 2 a few weeks ago on Sunday morning? Don't let the world can squeeze you into its mold. If, if you're just left out there to the world, you're, you're a sitting duck, right? But Jesus doesn't end there. Look at what he says in verse 17. 
sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, interesting. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, Jesus could have said, your word is true. Would that be an accurate statement? What's the difference between true and truth, grammatically? One's an adjective, and one's a direct object. That may mean nothing to you. Jesus says, your word is true. Is Jesus' word true? Yes. But when Jesus says, your word is truth, the way he says it in the original language is that your word is truth with a capital T. It is the truth, meaning it is the, the absolute truth. And so the way that we stay sane and protected in this world is that Jesus promises us that if we are in his word, scripture saturation, for sanctified in the word, we will be protected. And then notice what he says in verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. So Jesus is sending us out, sheep among wolves, but if we're sanctified by the truth, by the word, we will be protected. But we still got to go out there. So the important thing in this teaching is that we are so grounded in the word that when we go out into the world, the world doesn't affect us, but that we're salt and light in the world. Does that make sense? Okay, let's go to the crucifixion. John 19, 16 through 37. So he delivered him over to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Okay, this is the crucifixion of Jesus, and we don't have time to go look at all the fulfillments of prophecy, but you see a lot of fulfillments from especially Psalm 22. If you want to go back and look at a a big psalm, go read Psalm 22 and find out all the different allusions to the crucifixion in Psalm 22. Now, I want to show you another I am. I said that was the last I am statement. Let's go to one more. Go back to chapter 18. Jesus is in the garden. The soldiers are out there getting ready to arrest him. Judas has betrayed him with a kiss. Look at verse 4. And again, if we doubt that Jesus doesn't know the future, John 18, 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am We have he there to make it sense, but the original text is I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Who are you seeking? Jesus, I am. 
they fall back because of the power of his word right there. Even in the midst of his arrest, Jesus still has authority. Now, when we go back to the crucifixion, look at verse 28 back in chapter 19. After this, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he cried out, It is finished. It's one word in the original language. It's tetelestai. It means paid in full. When a document was used, like when you would go get a document and you'd pay something in full, like if you paid off your mortgage, which most of us would like, you know, they'd stamp this stamp on the mortgage or, or the document saying, Tetelestai, it's been paid in full. All the debts have been paid, everything's settled up, you no longer owe anything. And that's what Jesus cried out, it is paid in full. It's in, I'm going to teach you guys real quick, a tense in the Greek language that's very, very important. Okay, let's just talk about tenses real quick. What's the present tense? Something is happening as ongoing. It's ongoing action. So Jesus isn't saying, it's finishing. Is that what he's saying there? Okay. We have a past tense, right? What is past tense? Something came to a completion. A simple, a simple completed action. In... Somebody's talking to me. And there's two past tense in Greek. This is what we call the aorist. The aorist tense just means simple action. It came to a completion. I went to the store. Simple past tense, right? Okay. Jesus uses a different past tense here when he says it is finished. It's called the perfect tense. The way the perfect tense translates is it means that an action came to a completion, but the results are ongoing in the present. So it's really hard to translate in English, but it, when Jesus says it is finished, it's basically saying, it came to a completion on the cross, and what I finished still stands completed in the present. It's an absolute completion. Does that make sense? So that perfect tense makes it a stronger tense in the Greek language to show the absolute finished work of Christ on the cross. Now, he could have just said, it's finished, aorist, and he would have been correct. It's finished. It came to a completion. But perfect tense, it came to a completion, and what Jesus accomplished there it has the ongoing effects of that are standing now into the present. We don't have a tense like that in English. That's the beauty of why God had the Bible written in Greek. So that you can have those tenses that add a deep theological meaning. Does that make sense? That was a real quick Greek lesson on the perfect tense. Any questions on that? Does that make sense? Or did I totally confuse you? Okay. Let's talk about the resurrection because I want to get finished here. John 20, 
Uh, let's look at 24 through 29. You know the story. He appears to Mary Magdalene, and then he goes to the disciples. But then Thomas the doubter, <laughs> he's not there when Jesus shows up. And so everybody's saying, yeah, he's alive, he's alive. And Thomas is like, unless I see, I'm not. he's from Missouri. Show me, state. Unless I see it, I'm not going to believe it. So let's look at verse 24, chapter 20. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and believe my hand inside, I will never believe. Is that just a casual, eh, I don't think I'm going to believe it. It's a defiant, I will never believe it unless I see it. It's got to be proved to me, Jesus. Okay, eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Now, two things on this. What does Thomas call Jesus? My Lord and my God. It's no longer just rabbi. Thomas says, I am submitting my life to you as God. You are God. And then Jesus says, you've been blessed because you've seen me. How many people actually got to see Jesus resurrected? It says over 500 witnesses in 1 Corinthians. But Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Who does that include? Us. Jesus is saying, there's going to be a group of people in the future that are going to be just as blessed as you, Thomas. You have the privilege of touching my body, but they're going to have the privilege of believing me whom they have not seen because the power of the Holy Spirit is going to come in them and dwell in them, and then one day they will see me face to face. Now, then you get the purpose of the book, what I said there in verse 30. The purpose is at the very end. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, let's go to the very last sentence in the Gospel of John, which is an amazing sentence. John twenty-one twenty-five. Very last sentence. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Isn't that amazing? Think about all the books that are in the world. You go to the Library of Congress and see all those books. So that's how the Gospel of John ends.